The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who is the Dean of the Grazadillo School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thanks so much, Rick. It's good to be here today. Well, I understand the Dean's Executive Leadership Series is going well this year. We've had some fabulous speakers, and I think our listeners will be particularly interested in today's guest. Well, tell us a little bit about Ann Weiser. Well, Ann is the Chief Human Resources Officer for Activision Blizzard. And for those who are not quite so familiar with video games, they do Guitar Hero, Call of Duty, and when they just recently merged with Blizzard, now do World of Warcraft. So it was a fascinating study of the video game industry, and I think our listeners will be quite interested to hear what she has to say. Oh, boy, I'm sure that's right. Well, let's uh, invite our listeners to sit back and relax and to enjoy this conversation with Ann Weiser, Chief Human Resources Officer for Activision Blizzard. If it's okay, I thought we'd dive right in. On our drive to the studio this afternoon, you noted that many top executives at Activision are from the consumer products industry. With so many different consumer product companies to choose from, such as Mattel, PepsiCo, Clorox, and so on, what is it about Activision that attracts brand marketers to your company? I think that that what attracts CPG people to a company like Activision, my background is consumer products, as is our CEO and our CFO and most of the people on our management team, is that consumer products companies are big and um, sometimes lumbering. And uh, uh, because the size and scale of their organizations, it takes a lot as an individual to have to make a real difference in a company like that, to leave your imprint on a brand or a product. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't. nobody wants to mess with the crown jewels of Velveeta or Tide or Clorox. And so you don't mess with the formula on, on successful brands like that. At a company like Activision, we have all of the same attributes in marketing. It's just a much faster-paced organization. Um, uh, you know, a game is two years in development. It's six months on the shelf, and then it uh, sort of fades into oblivion if, for most products. Uh, and so you're constantly working on new products, new franchises, new ways of marketing a product. Uh, so it's very fast-paced, and because it's such a new industry and relatively small – and the marketing teams are relatively small, a great chance to leave your your imprint, your impression on the business. And so people come to us because they want to be able to use all the tools and skills that they learned in a more traditional employer, uh, but do it in a more uh, uh, fast-paced, um, upbeat, uh, growth-oriented industry like uh, like video games. So as you think about your role in HR and, and as you're out looking for the right kinds of people to move the company forward, what kind of qualities are you looking for in individuals that might be a bit different given the nature of the industry that you're in, different than a more traditional industry? Uh, <clears throat> you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is that we really look for people who are comfortable with ambiguity. Because it is a new and um, a relatively new and very growth-oriented industry, there's not um, always a clear path on how to get from point A to point B. And um, the uh, businesses and franchises can um, 
grow at an exponential rate. And, um, you know, I think Guitar Hero is a perfect example of that. Uh, When I joined the company in 2007, uh, Guitar Hero was planned to do about $250 million in top-line revenue. Um, At the end of the year um, of 2007, we delivered over a billion dollars of revenue with Guitar Hero. It just caught fire. Amazing growth. Oh, amazing. Such a short yeah. period of time. And so you um, you have to be willing to say, gosh, I'm not sure exactly what to do, but I'm willing to jump in and try to make it happen. And that's the, when I talk about ambiguity, it's that kind of ambiguity that the, the path's not always clear, the direction a product is going to take is not always clear. And so, you, um, as a, uh, and it's, very, it's not routine. And so somebody who's comfortable with that sort of uncertainty, um, that like that level of excitement, um, it's, it's a very high velocity business. So you look for somebody who's got a huge amount of energy, um, and I think, you know, it's uh, going back to the point I made earlier, you do look for that little bit of dissatisfaction with sort of traditional business or bureaucracy. You want somebody to say, I'm itching to make a difference um, because they'll have a chance to do it in a company like ours. And, um, uh, you know, we uh, e- even in the year plus that I've been with the company, we went from being a, <clears throat> you know, relatively small $2 billion publicly traded mm-hmm. company uh, we went through uh, sort of a life-changing merger for the organization and, and uh, more than doubled in size. We have a majority shareholder in a, a French-owned company, right. Vivendi. Okay. Uh, we have a brand-new board of directors. And so in the short span of 14 months, um, sort of my world and the my stakeholders and the people I interface with and the needs of the board – are dramatically different than what it was when I joined the organization. You know, fast growth, but sort of um, a little more, um, a little sleepier kind of company, if that's possible in a video game company, to something now that has really global proportion um, with, a, with a board that, you know, is uh, uh, chaired by a guy who runs a $70 billion company out of Paris. So a very different kind of organization. So th- I think somebody who is prepared for that kind of change uh, is also uh, one of the key characteristics we look for. Let's talk some about that transition when Activision and Blizzard uh, came together and merged, because that was a significant adjustment for the company. It was very soon after you came on board as the in the HR area, and as we know, anytime you do a merger like that of two companies, you're bringing cultures together. In addition to sort of the business side, there is the huge cultural piece of it that influences the employees. Talk a bit about how you went about making that merger successful, both from a business perspective and a cultural perspective? Um, let me start first on the business side. <clears throat> the um, And I have to talk a little bit about Activision's acquisition strategy to have this make sense. Um, we've grown both organically, um, uh, but we've also grown through acquisition. As example, um, Red Octane, the, uh, the uh, business that started Guitar Hero, was an acquisition of Activision's. And over the last seven years or so, we've probably bought 13 development studios, you know, ranging in size from 40 people in Iowa City to, you know, 150 people in Liverpool and the U.K. Um, Our strategy has been to maintain a level of independence with those studios. They are all – they all continue to be run by their founders, and we give them a fair degree of autonomy – And we do that because we think that aids um, the creative process. It um, allows for a lot lot more innovation. They don't get 
corporatized, um, like a lot of other acquisitions might. And um, so that that willingness to give an acquisition uh, room to be itself uh, and room to have its own culture and, uh, you know, sort of the physical and not-so-physical distance and space to be uh, its own company is very much part of how we have operated and been, and one of the things that has made us successful over the years. We approached the acquisition with Vivendi in very much the same way. <clears throat> Vivendi essentially had... Um, two halves to its company. It had Vivendi Games, which was, uh, uh, was a mix of different types of um, uh, uh, game, uh, 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 game delivery models, <clears throat> mobile, casual, console games, much like Activision, but on a much smaller scale. And then you had Blizzard. Um, Blizzard was the behemoth that uh, had a completely different business model, um, mostly online and PC-based games. So as we approached this, um, it was clear very early on that um, uh, the element of the Vivendi Games acquisition that was going to be important to the uh, combined company was Blizzard. And so we approached Blizzard like we would a big studio acquisition and said, you know, you guys obviously know how to run your company. You're very successful. Um, we will provide the services to you that you need. Um, but we're going to give you all the room to do what you do well. And so um, they operate very much like a standalone uh, business unit within the Activision Blizzard organization. Um, <clears throat> I think the one thing that is common, however, is that um, there is uh, uh, respect for um, on both sides. So Blizzard looking at Activision and Activision looking at Blizzard, respect for the quality of game development and their business success. And, um, and so I think that mutual respect for what the, each of the respective organizations and leadership teams have been able to deliver over the years um, um, allows us to listen to one another, allows us to uh, look for points of commonality and compromise where we need to have it, um, but also to respect uh, what makes their company unique. Um, so that's one aspect of it. I think the second was um, the corporate functions of Vivendi Games and Activision w were not dissimilar from one another. The corporate offices were five miles apart. Uh, we recruited and uh, attracted very similar kinds of people. In fact, Vivendi had many former Activision employees, and Activision had many former Vivendi employees. People who get into the industry seem to stay in the industry. And so um, uh, the cultural mix of the 100-plus employees from Vivendi that came over to Activision's corporate office was very easy. And, um, and we were delighted by the quality of talent that Vivendi had, uh, had harnessed in their business. <clears throat> And um, so that piece has worked very well. Um, so I think that uh, the, the culture and the business, the, the way we've approached the business and the cultures of the companies have really complemented uh, each other. I think at the end of the day, when you take a look at when everything sort of shakes out and where um, um, the, the final business model emerges in the organization, I think what you're going to see are, you know, two very strong sort of equally sized, equally profitable operating companies in Activision Publishing, which is primarily console games, and Blizzard, which is primarily online games. You know, I think the fact that they are about the same size and about the same profitability, <clears throat> 
they're twins in many ways. Mm-hmm. We're they're even now, and um, so I think I think that leads to an understanding and a respect for you know they're the best at what they do. Activision is the best at what they do, and uh, and and that the respect for what we've put together, sort of mar- the marriage of two very complementary partners, uh, I, I think has allowed everybody to. Um, maybe overlook some of those inevitable early skirmishes that you have in mergers. Um, I've been through a lot of uh, uh, mergers and things that have been called mergers uh, in my career, and uh, and I actually think this is one of the smoothest ones I've been through. Another aspect of that merger was the fact that Activision only had sort of a small piece of its uh, function outside of the U.S., but Vivendi had a fairly significant presence outside of the U.S. How did that aspect of the the combination of the two companies work, and has that presented some unique challenges that you've had to deal with? It's actually, some, well, challenges and some great mm-hmm. benefits for us. <clears throat> um, in the U.S. and Europe, Activision on the console side was um, uh, stronger, larger, and more profitable than Vivendi Games. And so I think uh, the sale and the sales force um, uh, represents both product lines to customers. So uh, we have a single sales force in the U.S. and a single sales force, or we'll have a single sales force in Europe, that uh, present um, to uh, one of our big customers products from both the Activision portfolio and the Vivendi and the um, Blizzard portfolio. So I think Blizzard looked at the strength of the sales organization in um, and the size and scale of the sales organization in the U.S. and Europe as a real benefit to them. And a case in point is um, uh, Blizzard did their very first launch uh, of a new game uh, through the Activision sales force uh, since the merger. So this was our the sales force test for their ability to really deliver on, uh, on uh, a Blizzard launch. <clears throat> Across Europe, um, we, d- we held uh, over 2,500 uh, what are called midnight store openings, where a store that sells video games will open um, at midnight to sell one company's product. And so, in the case of um, in the case of Blizzard, it was a Wrath of the Lich King. So, um, I got an email over the weekend from uh, the sales leader in Europe who talked about you know standing in front of a store uh, in London with three thousand customers wow. waiting in line to buy Wrath of the Lich King, and this was replicated in 2,500 locations across Europe. That's going to be a great Europe. feeling when you hear those stories. <clears throat> Absolutely. And so I think the strength of the sales force uh, in the U.S. and Europe was a wonderful complement uh, and a real benefit to what um, how Blizzard looked at the combination. On the Activision side, um, while we had that strong pr- footprint in, uh, in, in primarily North America and, and a growing footprint in Europe, what we didn't have um, was the uh, presence in Asia that uh, Blizzard has been so, so successful in growing. And so we look at their experience uh, and their footprint in Asia as a real opportunity for us to learn and to leverage. And one, one perfect example of that is Vivendi had put in place and developed a studio in Shanghai to do art. Um, Outsourcing art is a very common practice in our business and and helps manage the overall cost of the development project. And um, we'd we'd never uh, been able to pull together the resources or the wherewithal to really get a footprint in uh, in China to do outsourced art, and so we used contractors. So once the acquisition was put together, um, we 
many of us started talking about Studio Chin. Studio Chin, what are we going to do with Studio Chin? And finally, we convinced the chief technology officer to make a trip out to Shanghai and visit Studio Chin and make an assessment of what their capabilities are. And he, I think he went um, with a little bit of a jaundiced eye saying, you know, we're so much better at, you know, a company. How can they have anything that's worthwhile? Um, and he, he walked in, spent a couple of days, and came back out and said, this is a great opportunity. We need to keep the studio going. We may need to reshape it slightly. And so those are the kinds of learnings that I think we're able to sort of fast adapt, if you will, that for us to be able to uh, have a freestanding facility in Shanghai would have taken years and incredible legal expense and all kinds of uh, local knowledge in order to be able to establish it. And sort of in one visit, we were able to go from not having anything to having, you know, 70-plus employees. Uh, and so it's that level of learning, those relationships that I think will really benefit Activision um, in, in Asia um, because it's a incredibly untapped market for consoles uh, and especially for Western publishers. And uh, Blizzard seems to have figured it out, and uh, we're anxious to learn from them. Well, we're clearly going through a really challenging economic time around the country right now. How is that being viewed at Activision Blizzard, and and how are you preparing for that? What do you sort of anticipate? How do you, even from an HR perspective, beyond what the company's doing, manage through a time like this? Wow. That's a, it's a big question, and there's a lot of different ways to take, take the response to that. <clears throat> Let me start with the public answer, which is um, last week uh, during our earnings call, we, we uh, reaffirmed our, um, our business plans and our uh, profit projections for 2008. Uh, one of the few companies in our industry and in industry in general who have been able to do that. Um, we're very optimistic about the quality and the number of games that are coming out this holiday season from Activision and Blizzard. I mentioned the uh, Wrath of the Lich King that was just released, and we have a new James Bond game that was just released this weekend, a new Guitar Hero game, um, uh, and the list goes on. So we feel really great about the slate of products that are being released and um, um, and and the number and the range of uh, potential audiences that um, might be attra attracted to a particular game. You know, one customer is going to buy Call of Duty, another customer is going to buy Madagascar. So um, we feel good about what we have in the marketplace. Um, what is still, I think, a great uncertainty for um, any company such as ours or anybody who sells through retail is, you know, will the customers really show up? Um, and, you know, our five big customers in the U.S., um, Target, Walmart, et cetera, very cautious about their holiday season. And, um, you know, Walmart's continued to do well, but some of the other retailers have had a, had a tougher time uh, and are concerned about what the holiday season will uh, bring for them. Circuit City was a big customer of ours, and they filed for bankruptcy. They will continue to operate, but uh, puts us in a different situation sure. in terms of dealing with them. So we're, we are cautious um, in light of what we're hearing from our customers. Um, there, is a, there are many who view uh, the video game industry to be recession-proof, um, in part because it's a relatively cost-effective product. It's a great value for the money if you think about the amount of time someone spends uh, playing a game <clears throat> when you, and um, in comparison to what other entertainment venues might cost. It's 
a lot more expensive to go to a football game or buy a book or go to the movies than it is uh, um, in terms of uh, minutes of uh, entertainment hours or minutes of entertainment uh, relative to the cost. So we provide a great value, and so we think people will see that. Um, and uh, so we're hopeful about that piece of it. Um, so on the business side, we're cautiously optimistic. Um, we have uh, looked at where we see great sell-through of our product. Uh, Guitar Hero, Call of Duty have been very successful in the marketplace so far. In the places where our products are not as – we're not seeing as strong a sell-through, there's some very dedicated promotional activity that's going on literally as we speak on <clears throat> how we shore up and – uh, promote in a more aggressive way products that don't uh, that uh, that don't seem to be as popular as some of our other products. Um, you know, it's it's a we want to make sure that we're not relying on just one or two uh, games to sort of get us through the holiday season. We want them all to be successful. So that's what's happening in terms of sort of shoring up those places that uh, may appear to have a little bit of uh, potential weakness. On the HR side. Uh, you know, many companies have made some, and you re- read it in the newspaper every day, have made some very dramatic decisions about layoffs, uh, about um, uh, hiring freezes, uh, people um, um, uh, temporarily or permanently suspending the company's match to a 401k plan, uh, reducing the merit bonus budget, you know, all kinds of things going We've on. We've experienced them cutting back on their educational <clears throat> reimbursement <laughs> programs as well, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so I think lots of employers are looking for every opportunity to sort of manage uh, their uh, uh, expenses going into 09 and either in response to what's happened in their, in their industry or in preparation for what could happen in their industry. We are... Um, we have traditionally been a company that is um, doesn't live high on the hog, and uh, um, we have a CFO who keeps a pretty you know pretty uh, tight handle on the purse strings, and and we have a good discipline and rigor in the company around managing operating expenses. Um, as an example, we're going through the budgeting process right now, and and uh, so we we have been asked to submit two budgets, our budget, and then a contingency budget in the event we are asked to be flat to current year. So it's those kinds of um, anticipatory practices that we've put in, that we've, we are putting in place that I think are reflective of a more disciplined operating expense culture. Um, we've had the discussions about, you know, what if, what if, what if. And we've said, you know, we are, we're going to ride it out. We don't have to make some of these decisions until into 2009. Um, we're a flexible and nimble enough company that if we have to make some decisions about some of these benefits or things of that sort that we will um, uh, if we have to. Our feeling at this point is um, uh, we, we feel like we're going to have a good holiday season where we're not going to have to take those kinds of actions. But um, we, rather than uh, really taking advantage of great years and then falling really sharply when we don't have as great a year, we're a company that's tried to be more uh, conservative in the management of our operating expenses, and I think that's helped us. So now to the real serious question of the day. Um, are you, do you play your own games, and what are your favorite ones that you have at Activision? I think my favorite is Guitar Hero. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we actually have a, a new version of Guitar Hero that I think is really terrific, which is Guitar Hero on the DS. So it's the handheld. Oh, uh-huh. And uh, what I love about it is that it is portable. You can take it wherever you go. You can play it on, on an airplane. You can play it, you know, sitting on a train or sitting in the backseat of your car. Um, but what, what I think is really cool about this is the technology 
that went into the development of this. We have a small development studio in Albany, New York, of all places, um, run by two brilliant brothers who uh, started their software development company, their video game company, when they were in high school, I think in their parents' basement. And this particular studio is known for innovative technology and looking for ways to um, take an existing product and really expand its use. And so they have a little innovation lab in their studio, and they came up with the um, attachment to the handheld that um, has four cords on it. And so you can actually plug it into the back of your handheld DS and, um, you know, put in your game. And with um, uh, the stylus, it looks like a little pick for a guitar, and yet you can actually play it um, holding it in your hand. And and, uh, I think it's a great application of not only a fun and really enjoyable game in Guitar Hero, but a really creative use of technology um, in a way that people would never have expected. So I think today that's my favorite game. When it's those kinds of innovations that will allow you to stay ahead of the competitors and to continue to be successful as a company, hopefully even in these really difficult economic times. Right Absolutely. Now. And, it, you know, things like the DS appeal to a younger audience mm-hmm. and, and, uh, or travelers, and, and so we're able to get into niche markets that we wouldn't have normally. Well, I know my family enjoys the games because my husband is, uh, is loves Call of Duty, and my daughter doesn't have Madagascar, but I bet she would love it, so we may have to go out and get it. And we yeah. certainly all enjoy playing Guitar Hero when we have a chance to do that. Yeah. To kind of bring our discussion to a close today, um, we in the Grazia Dio School uh, talk about developing value-centered leaders and really advancing responsible business practice. So would you kind of, as we close today, talk a bit about the role of values and, and thinking about that in the context of what you do at Activision, how that's important and how that plays out in the context of your work? Um, I have two uh, great stories to tell related to that. We have a process within uh, our company that we call the OGSP, O for objectives, uh, G for goals, S for strategy, and um, a P for plan. So uh, it is our one-page strategic plan, and it is an exercise that the management team um, uses um, as our um, guidebook, if you will, for managing the business every year. And... Um, as part of the OGSP, very prominently on the on the top of the page, we have our mission and then we have our values. And um, our values are creativity and innovation, um, uh, ethics, and uh, of course I'm going to forget the third thing: accountability, mm-hmm. of course. And um, and um, so it is. I think there's a constant reminder in our leaders that it's one thing to have a great strategic plan, uh, to have really well thought out tactical efforts to accomplish those strategies, but if you're not doing it in the context of the values of the company, um, then um, your work is sort of all for naught. And as we approach the 08 planning year, um, I, I'll, I remember very clearly the CEO sitting at the table with his management team and saying. Uh, you know, last year we you know, we were spot on in terms of getting our strategies right, measuring the right metrics, having a great planning process. We didn't talk as much about values in the context of our work as we will in 08. Um, and he said, I really want us to think long and hard about how we make the values more prominent in our business. One of the things, one of the takeaways for us in HR is we have, uh, we've, uh, we're just launching next week um, our first ever leadership development curriculum for our director and senior director level. And one of the things that we've built into our, um, uh, it's a f- uh, 
it's about a four-month training program, one of the things we built into that are case studies around our values so that we can break the group up. There's about 35 participants, break them up into small groups, and we have sort of tough, challenging, ethical or compliance-related questions that we want the group to to grapple with, to discuss, and then share their perspectives and thoughts with the rest of their their audience or the rest of their, their peers in the group. Our view is that um, people really need to sort of uh, wrestle with those tough issues and, and really sort of sort out how they would deal with um, uh, those things that they might face in the business. So that, I think, is the sort of the macro answer to your question and, and how we have incorporated values into the way we operate our business, uh, both at a very strategic level and also how we integrate it into our work in HR. Um, the second is I had a meeting today with our corporate compliance officer, and um, she came to see me about an idea that she has on setting up a, uh, a steering committee for the compliance effort. And we talked about, you know, who should be on it, what are the kinds of subjects that we need to cover, you know, what are the things that she wants the committee to weigh in on. We talked about having our um, – we have a board member who is um, who is uh, her point of contact for the compliance committee, having him come in and speak to the group. So it's very much a part of how we operate our business every day. And um, uh, and I've come from companies that have had very well established ethics and compliance functions, and and uh, and that is one of the other benefits of recruiting people from big companies. Uh, like Procter or Pepsi or other organizations like that. They've got more established business disciplines um, like an ethics committee or a compliance function. And so when you talk to the CFO about wanting to do this kind of thing, he gets it. He has the experience with it. He knows its value. And um, and I think that's that's one of the other great benefits of Activision is that while we have the, f- the look and feel and the flexibility of a small startup in some ways in a fast-growing industry, we've got – uh, very talented, seasoned uh, leaders peppered all throughout the organization who come from uh, more disciplined, um, established, regulated organizations, and we can bring that value to this fast-growing, you know, adolescent company. Well, Anne, it's been fascinating visiting with you today, and thank you so much for sharing your insights and, and uh, wisdom with us. We appreciate it so thank much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, Linda, that was certainly an enjoyable conversation. It was. We really enjoyed our discussion and hearing about the work that they're doing in the gaming industry. Well, tell us who uh, we can look forward to hearing from next. We start after the first of the year on January 20th with Julia Stewart, chairman and CEO of Dine Equity. Dine Equity supervises the restaurants Applebee's and IHOP brand. So mm. it will be a very interesting conversation Sounds with like a Julia. tasty interview. So. <laughs> well, let me invite our uh, listeners uh, who are enjoying these podcasts to subscribe by going to bschool.pepperdine.edu slash Dells. That's D-E-L-S. And we'd like to invite you as well to uh, go to our YouTube channel or iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. Why is Pepperdine University's Grazio Dio School of Business and Management considered the smart way for working professionals to earn an MBA? Well, first and foremost, Forbes magazine ranks Pepperdine's fully employed MBA program among the top 20 business schools for return on investment. So financially, it's very smart. And Pepperdine's program is built around real-world curriculum, not just theory, so students can apply what they learn in class at the workplace the next day. So now, does earning an MBA from one of the most highly regarded business schools in the world 
Sound like a smart move to you? Then call 1-800-933-3333 for more information. That's 1-800-933-3333. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management. The smart business decision. And Pepperdine also offers a top-ranked executive MBA program.